This is the Great IO Get Together, originally recorded on YouTube Live. Although you can listen to the show as a podcast, you only get the full experience by visiting thegig.online/youtube. Welcome to the Great IO Get Together. On tonight's show, quips and queries about the world of work as IO psychology comes alive. Now, please welcome our hosts, Richard and Tara. Thank you so much, Jerry. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Great IO Get Together number 17, a little bit of this and that with Katina Sawyer. Uh, my name is Richard. This is my co-host, Tara. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to be in the loop for the next show, make sure that you click subscribe and the notification bell below the video. Join our Discord. Uh, we have an email notification list. You can find details about all of that on our website, uh, thegig.online. All of our regular shows, this one is no exception, have two halves. And in the first half, we have a little fun. Second half, we get a little more serious, uh, all with our guest of the day. Our guest for today is Dr. Katina Sawyer, Associate Professor of Management and Organizations at the University of Arizona. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, the game uh, we will be playing today is called A Little Bit of This and That. Uh, and with that, I will hand it over to Tara. Okay, Katina, this is a, a game that we made up from scratch, so you may not be familiar with the rules. What we're going to do is show you some, some stimulus, a photo, a quote, and we'll ask you, is it this or is it that? And there are no prizes, so please feel free to, to guess randomly. There are no penalties for incorrect guesses. So we will do four rounds and then a bonus speed round at the end. Perfect. Right. Sounds good, I think. <laughs> <laughs> regretting this that's probably wise okay let's start with the first category please richard all right katina are these three quotes from one of your papers or from theater's republic <laughs> so, um appearance tyrannizes over truth is this you or plato that is probably plato unless we're quoting someone else <laughs> in the paper <laughs> okay correct that is a plato quote how about number two? Necessity is the mother of invention. Um, it might be Plato's Republic. <laughs> Maybe it's us if we're quoting someone else. That's not us. <laughs> All right. You're right. That's Plato, too. I, you know, I have to say when I was researching this game and looking up a lot of Plato quotes, I was just kind of blown away. It really. <laughs> I thought necessity is the mother of invention was like Thomas Edison quote or something. That's why I was like, I don't think it's me, but I also don't think it's Plato. So now I'm confused. <laughs> there are no trick questions in this game. I should have warned you. Okay. It really is a correct answer for all of them. Um, I, yeah, I thought that was from the Bible. So who knew? Anyway, <laughs> how about the third one? Real men don't make mistakes. That's 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 from one of my papers. That is correct. Good job. Do you want to tell us what that paper was about or what that? Yeah, was? that paper was about how men in masculine type jobs are actually punished more for errors than women in female type jobs or women mm -hmm. in male type jobs. So what we found was that um, when you're in a very masculine stereotypical job and you're a man that makes a mistake, you actually suffer the worst consequences of those errors compared to other combinations of job types and gender. Crazy. Uh, did you come up yes. with the the special title? Is that your your creation? Um, Christian Thorogood and I definitely came up with the title. I forget the exact process that we went through, but an interesting fact about this paper is that it got picked up by media outlets like fairly heavily when it came out, and one of the takes on it was basically like, see all along men have had it way worse than women in the workplace. And we were like, no, that's not what we were trying to say. So a little um, note on media exposure, not always going your way. Mm. That's certainly my experience too. I can't tell you how many times they've published exactly the opposite of the, of the truth, but um, that's a, a problem for another day. I suppose we could do a whole True. on that. All right, let's move on to the next category. Okay. All right, Katina, are these photos of psychology department buildings or business school buildings? So we'll do mm. one by one. So how about <laughs> the, we'll go from the top left. That's a business school building. No. It's a psych building? <laughs> it's a psych building. <laughs> it's kind of tiny. 
That's like the picture true. is tiny. I mean, like I feel, I feel like I'm having trouble. Oh, I see. So I've, I've rigged the game basically. You can put, no, your- no, I, but let, let's go to the, I think which direction are we going to the left and like around yes, or to we'll the right and around? Ice. We'll go to the clockwise. Okay. So how about the middle top? Okay. That looks like a psych building to me. Yes. Correct. How about mm-hmm. the third one? That seems like it could be a business school. Yep. How about directly below that? That looks like a business school to me. 100%. Yep. <laughs> All right. How about the middle bottom? That's a psych department, maybe. Yep. And how about the last one? That looks probably like a business school. Correct. So, <laughs> so whoever's the top left, you have maybe you have a nice psych department. I don't know. I mean, in my mind, the, the three concrete blocks are clearly identifiable as psychology <laughs> departments <laughs> and the beautiful architecture are, um, are not. Oh, I think maybe it was something to do with the, it looked like it had like mirrored windows in between. I associate mirroredness with business school. Oh, uh, I see. I, yes, yeah. that's... I, I think the windows on the first floor are each like a foot wide, though, which feels very psyched. Okay. Yeah, that that does make some sense. I I I'm a, I'm a believer now that that's. Do you want to know building. where they are? I can tell you the university. Yeah, I do. All right, so the top row is NC State, UNC in the middle, and then Harvard Business School, mm-hmm. and the bottom right is Arizona State Business School, Harvard Psychology, and University of Pittsburgh Business. Nice, cool. Well, Great. you know, <laughs> the the NC State building seemed to rank higher than the other two in my mind so i guess good job six years there myself i you know quite happy to hear that it was uh, (laughs) also an example of truly horrible architecture (laughs) (laughs) all right let's you know so one of the reasons i put this category in here is because you have um a sort of varied path through both psychology and business school um environments is this not your experience do they not uh shower you with with gold and rubies when you show up in business school <laughs> yes i mean i did receive a unicorn as part of my contract mm. um no <laughs> there are definitely material differences between psych and business i would say including the buildings um tend to be a little bit more up to date uh there was a building uh, when I was at Villanova in the psych department. The outside of that building was beautiful. It looked like Hogwarts on the outside, but on the inside, it looked like some sort of like like cafeteria from the 1980s. Like it was like this this terrible bait and switch. Like beautiful outside, inside. And also, I took a class once with someone who was like a former engineer, and he was like, "This building's gonna fall over someday." And I I don't know if that's true or not, but. <laughs> But I've always remembered it and been like, hmm, nice. Okay, great. Not going in there if I don't have to. I guess all the buildings will fall down eventually. My my favorite yeah. academic building uh, image is there's a Tumblr account called Sad Chairs of Academia that is just posts of abandoned office chairs. And they're, they're truly heartbreaking. And my experience of psychology departments is that they're just chairs strewn everywhere all the time, sort of universal. Yeah. And desks, like old desks. Um, And now that I'm thinking about that, that's correct. And because there's a lot of people who run like animal experiments, it always like has like a little bit of a rat smell, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. We we have it. There are endearing things about it too. There are endearing things about it. Yeah, we have, I think we have a decaying uh, mini fridge and a decaying mini sofa sitting in the elevator lobby uh, of our building right now. Oh, a decaying mini fridge sounds, mm-hmm. I hope that like it the looks, fridge itself is decaying and it, not things that are yeah, still in it, the fridge. It's, it's quite beat up. There was an email that went out about who left this fridge out here. We need to deal with mm. that situation. And uh, it's been there now for at least a month. Also a mystery <laughs> fridge. I also like the like, we all know it's there, but none of us will take responsibility <laughs> to move it. <laughs> no, exactly. It's I mean, it's a perfect example of the tragedy of the commons. No one will ever touch that fridge. You can use it as a teaching tool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right, why let's not? Let's move on to our next category. Okay. <laughs> Too much about fridges. <laughs> okay. Is this a title of a college class or a classic hip-hop album? Hmm. So I'll give you a second to take a look. So we've got number one, the divine feminine. Does that sound like 
Haute Class or a hip hop album? You know, I think it could be both, but I think it's a hip hop album. You are correct. That is a Mac Miller album. All right. How about number two? What does it all mean? 1983 to 2006? <laughs> <laughs> um, that would be probably one of the most boring hip hop albums of all time. Uh, that's definitely the title of a college class. It is not. It is the title. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's How not, is it true? It was, it was on Rolling Stone's list of the top 500 hip hop albums of all time, which is obviously what I used to make this list. <laughs> wow. I feel yeah. very upset for whoever I've offended. Honestly, that looks like a college class to me too, but <laughs> yeah. Right. The next one, this one maybe is a little bit easier. Low end theory. Is it easier? I don't know. Um, I believe that that's the title of a college class. It is also a hip hop album. Wow. Tribe Called Quest. I'm not doing well at names of hip hop albums, I gotta say. I think what that means is that your classes are really fun because they're so <laughs> exciting. They could be albums. <laughs> All right, how about this one? Nautical archaeology. Well, they've all been hip-hop albums, so I feel like this one has to be a class now. Oh, well, good test-taking strategy. Uh, yes, it is indeed <laughs> a class. <laughs> it is a class, although I think it could be a Jamiroquai album, frankly. I mean, it's got that kind yeah. of cool feeling. Nautical, right. virtual insanity, nautical archaeology. You see where I'm going. They sound similar. Yeah, so this is a class that's actually offered at Texas A&M and other places. Okay. All right, how about this one? Getting Dressed. Um, I'm going to say that's a hip-hop album. That is a course at Harvard, I'm afraid. Hmm. Wow. And it's about exactly I wonder, is it on like the societal expectations for self-expression or something? Sort of, yeah. Okay. I mean, you, you can elevate it, but it's really about clothes getting dressed okay <laughs> <laughs> step one wake up everyone just shows up to the class with no clothes on and they're like help and they're like we've got you <laughs> one leg at a time we told you all right <laughs> last one the art of walking the art of walking sounds like a class like a mindfulness class to me um hmm. but I might go hip hop album. What do you think, Richard? Yeah, it's, I I could go either way. I, I think I'm going to vote hip hop also. It is a college class at Danville College. Was about, it on mindfulness? Do you know? It's about walking and in presentness and mindfulness. Mm. Yeah. Mm, I should have gone with my album. gut. Yeah. Rats. Sabotaged myself. <laughs> Well, I hope to see some of these titles in your future courses, at least. That would be All of them. I'm just going to make my class title this whole string, but with commas <laughs> in between. <laughs> Have you taught any of these like creatively titled like specialty seminar classes? They're sometimes kind of fun. Yeah, I haven't taught a creatively titled one, I would say. I've, I've mm. taught a lot of specialty seminar classes, but maybe not ones that have fun titles. I do know at Villanova, someone taught a class that was called like, baseball and the American dream, but it was about mm. race and meritocracy in America. Mm. And a lot of people that started in that class, I feel like were very confused. Um, cause they were like, I thought this was about baseball, but that kind of made it like <laughs> more fun because it got a different crowd in the class than normally would take it. So I've always kind of wanted to do a fun titled class, but I haven't done one yet. All right, let's move on. This is a picture round. Oh Are God! These people, actors or <laughs> psychologists. So we'll go from top left to bottom right. So top left, actor or psychologist? I think that's a psychologist. Correct. That is Carol Dweck. Very good. Yes, I was. I was thinking that it might be, but I didn't want to say a name just in case it wasn't. And then there was some like controversy over like, does Carol Dweck look like that person or not? <laughs> Should be watching, and we don't want to upset her. So, right, all right. How about uh, the next one? That's a character actor. That is an actor. That's Estelle Getty, who played Sophia on The Golden Girls. Oh, oh my mm. God, you're right. Mm -hmm. <gasps> oh, wow. <laughs> I did not right. realize who it was until I looked closer. But you can tell she's got that actor kind of vibe. Okay, how about the third one? Uh, like diagonal down, um, top right. So in front of the chalkboard. Oh, I think that's a that I think that's a people actor because 
because they're in front of a chalkboard, I feel like that would be a giveaway. And I feel like you're trying to trick me. Well, you mm-hmm. double fake yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's <was> eagly. Oh. <laughs> Work, I'm I sure you just... like and admire and, and cite all the time, but yes, is. this is a picture from the 70s, I think. And all right, how about bottom row then? Definitely psychologist. Correct. That's Jennifer Kelly. So she is the immediate past president of the APA. Yes. And clinical psychologist. And then how about the last one? Should I go with my thing again that that's an actor now? Because there's two chalkboards. I'm going to go with <laughs> actor for that one. That is Michelle Pfeiffer in the movie. Oh, <laughs> but I do know what Michelle Pfeiffer looks like, but it's just because it's tiny. I couldn't, I know what Michelle Pfeiffer looks like. I really do. You... I've watched a lot of videos of her being amazing, doing like the whip in Catwoman. Like I know what she looks like for sure. Sure. I mean, who doesn't know Not what Michelle if, Pfeiffer looks if like? If you could but... read the 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 chalkboard, it might've been a clue also, but it must, you it must, it must be too small for you. Mark. Yeah. Does anyone yeah. know karate is the key question. <laughs> On that chalkboard. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a psychology question. It could be bio. It could be. I don't know what Alice Eagley's um, chalkboard says, but I can't tell. I don't either. think it's about karate. Probably. Mm, it could be. We don't know. You're right. After. All right. Why would I underestimate Gosh. her that way? <laughs> okay, this is the last round. This is the speed round. Which? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wait, is this really one of these is Mongo? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so like, one of these fish is probably named Mongo. Which one is it? Okay, if I had to think about who I what I thought Mongo looked like in my mind, it would be the top right corner. I think with the teeth was what I thought Mongo would look like. I think it's very reasonable, but unfortunately, Mongo is a catfish, and so oh, the top left. Mm-hmm. So, oh. viewers at home who have not had the pleasure of meeting Mongo yet, um, Mongo is a catfish that lives in my backyard, um, in my pond, and uh, and Katina has not yet had the great pleasure of meeting him, which is why she didn't know what he looked like. But of course, she knows him by reputation. Of course. <laughs> Who doesn't know Mongo by reputation? It was just a very like um like out of body experience because Tara had just moved and she's living in this like natural setting when the last time I saw her she was in this urban setting. She's talking about all the new things she's doing like in nature and like she just starts talking about this fish and then somebody's like wait mongo and i was like is this fish famous like, <laughs> you have a famous fish living in your pond but then i came to find out that the fish is not as famous as i had originally thought it's more of like a regionally known fish yeah mm. <laughs> right now we got we're we're currently upping mongo's profile there's going to be a lot of searches for mongo as of today charge admission to my yard be great you should <laughs> it's exciting all right. So can we have the last slide, please, Richard? We can. Winner. Turns out you won the game. Uh, wow. <laughs> I was not keeping track of points, but really the game was completely rigged anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's the friends we made along the way. You get it. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a break now for five minutes. And then when we come back, fun's over. We'll do a hard-hitting interview. How does that sound? Great. Okay. See you all in five minutes. Welcome back. Uh, Going to start our interview with Katina. Uh, take it away, Tara. <laughs> okay, Katina. So I was really happy when you decided to uh, accept our guilt tripping and come on the show because I think you've had a really interesting career and one that the viewers would really like to hear more about. I've got a few questions. They don't really relate to each other. We'll just sort of see where it goes. Uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you, though, so you've got a really cool podcast, Worker Being, and I was listening to it the other day, and you talked about the challenges of new jobs. I thought it was interesting because I've started a new job recently, you've started a new job recently, and you mentioned this concept of social capital knowledge. Can you just talk about that, talk about that episode a little bit, and I'd love to have some examples of, of how that works in new jobs. Yeah. So some of what we've been talking about lately, potentially inspired by the fact that I and the 
my co-founder of Worker being Patricia Gabarik, she also started a new job. And so we were interested in the idea that when you start a new job, you're usually really excited and motivated to get going. But there could be some drawbacks, new research shows, um, in terms of just getting going and learning a new place and learning who knows what and how to find what. And you sort of take a hit in in terms of the extra cognitive processing that you have to do to figure out how things work in this new place in addition to starting um, up with your new role. So while you're really happy and motivated to be there, there are some basically like learning curve elements that people don't often think about. And one of those uh, is around this idea of social capital knowledge that you don't always know who's the person in the organization that knows all this stuff. You know, I feel like in all of our institutions, there's that person that everyone tells you when you come in, they know everything, right? Go to them. They're the person that knows it all. Um, But then there are also other people who know things that maybe aren't that person that you don't get directed to immediately um, that you sort of have to figure out on your own or what office do I email if I want an answer to this or who's the right person to go to even in my own department if I want advice about something. Um, And so figuring out those things can be a little bit challenging. And so people often think like you're motivated, you're new, you're going to hit the ground running and just like go. And sometimes the reality is that it takes a little while to sort of get up to speed and that that can kind of have some detriments on um, your burnout and exhaustion for a period of time until you get more fully acclimated to the job. That makes a lot of sense. And it must be so much harder too when you're starting remote. Yeah, I think uh, the research didn't look into um, remote versus in-person, but I do think it is challenging to try to understand who's who when there's no hallway to walk down or there's no sense of what the structure is. So I'm thinking about me getting situated at U of A, we're back in person. And part of what's useful is just milling around and hearing other people. Oh, I heard someone outside the office asking about a reimbursement for travel from this person. So they're probably the right person or whatever the case may be. So I think when people are more disconnected or working not in a co-located spot, it can be challenging to understand even who all the people are and they're not seeing you, you're not seeing them, and you're not just hearing or seeing the interactions between other people that are part of your learning. So I would imagine that that would be the case, although I don't think that this study, if I'm recalling correctly, I don't think that this study um, looked at that. Yeah, it's really, I mean, research opportunity for anyone listening, good dissertation. Yeah. I, I also... I feel like there's probably something to the idea that um, depending on who you are and how socially connected you are or whether you're part of an in-group, this can feel even more daunting and overwhelming. Uh, if you you know, you know show up in a new place and you don't have any existing network, no one's thinking, oh, I know your advisor, we have the same alma mater and you're just a stranger, like, how much more difficult that must be. Yeah, I think um, starting a new job it's always really, really useful to have people who are thinking about your perspective and trying to help you get up to speed. I've been lucky in starting this new job that I feel like everybody has been so friendly and welcoming and reaching out on their own to see if I have any questions or just calling and saying, Hey, do you have a quick five minutes? I'll give you some advice or let's sit down and talk about what's a great or strategic way for you to map out your um, year so that you're able to achieve your goals, but you're doing it in a sustainable way. So I feel like here people have been really, really helpful with regard to providing those supports. But, you know, I've never lived in this state. I don't really know a lot of people who live here. I didn't know very many people in my department before getting started here. And I could imagine if they were less proactive about that, it would probably be a much bigger challenge to have gotten up to speed. I mean, I'm still learning, but getting up to speed as quickly. Well, they're probably not listening, so you don't have to say nice things about them. (laughs) Oh, they're not? Okay, then. um, Anyway, the reality. No. (laughs) JK. Well, I think something you're so good at is breaking down research and communicating it in plain language for people. And that, that seems like what your podcast is really about. I'm curious, how did you get started with worker being and what have you learned over time about good science communication? Yeah. So the worker being podcast was born 
at a friend's wedding after Patricia and I had had some number of glasses of wine. I don't know the exact number, um, which might tell you <laughs> something about how many it was. But uh, we we were at um, the after party for a friend of ours from grad school's wedding. And we were talking about how we were feeling some frustration in our respective positions. Mine is an academic, hers as a practitioner, that people were frequently asking us really kind of low hanging fruit questions about basic human needs in the workplace. How do I make my employees happier? Or people are super burnout or exhausted, or they seem sad or sluggish all the time. Can you give me a tip about what to do to make things better? And I was saying that my master's students, uh, who at that time were all HR professionals, were asking me a lot of those sorts of questions. And when I would present kind of straightforward, like, hey, job satisfaction leads to productivity. And here are some basic things you can do to increase job satisfaction. It was like these light bulbs were going off um, in the classroom and they were thinking of different ways that they could intervene. And, um, and Patricia was seeing the same thing with clients. And we were kind of thinking to ourselves and then conversing with each other. It's not really cool that you have to have the money to pay for a grad degree or you have to have the money to pay for a consultant to come into your organization to understand these basic fundamental concepts of how to create more effective and well-being supportive ways of organizing. And so we kind of had this conversation about what could we do using our two kind of skill sets that we had developed after graduation and, and in grad school um, to help bring the science that we knew existed to every employee. And so our first thought was we would do a blog, which we still do. Um, and uh, we've been doing that blog now for like five or six years. And, um, and so that was our first thought was to do the blog. And then Shortly after we started the blog, we got the feedback that a lot of people like to read for information, but also a lot of people like to listen. And we started the podcast. So, um, and all of our episodes and all of our blog posts are free to everybody, including activities uh, that people can implement in their workplaces that are posted there. So the goal is kind of to make science accessible and fun. Um, we pay very close attention to the Fleisch reading ease score that uh, is given to us when we're writing blog posts because we're trained to write in a way that's just not effective for broader audiences. And um, I think we've learned a lot about how to take what is a complicated idea and preserve the nuance while making it more exciting and interesting to read. You've done almost 200 episodes at this point. And that seems like a lot. <laughs> Do you still feel like this is a worthwhile way to spend your, your time? And, and I'm, I'm imagining it takes a significant amount of time. Are you, are you still feeling like this is how you want to spend your precious few hours? <laughs> What an existential question. Loaded, yeah. I didn't know I only had a precious few hours left. <laughs> I better go. I, better go. <laughs> I gotta get off this podcast immediately. Um, no, I um I think that the first thing is that Patricia and I are really good friends. So we have fun talking and we have fun working with each other through worker beings. So it's partially that we find it fun. The other part of it is that I think we keep finding new and interesting articles that we think will be helpful for people to know more about. Mm. And so that's really been uh, something that keeps us motivated. Uh, every time uh, we find something new that we think an audience would like to hear about that's cutting edge research or something that's exciting that's come out from a lab, uh, we want to tell people about it. So I think the only thing I will say is that we are not and IO psychologists are not marketing experts, right? And so I think that's something that we've struggled with a lot as a podcast is how do we get our message out to people who are not our most likely listeners, right? So we really want to hit the HR professionals and the senior VPs and the mid-level managers who are thinking, I want some ideas for my team. And um, what we've learned in science communication, to kind of go back a little bit to your question before, is that people don't actually care that much that it's science-based, but they care that it, it produces results. So when you say this is something that's been demonstrated to produce results, people care. But if you say we're basing this on science, people are like, I don't really know exactly what that means. And so we've found that talking about what results um, these things have been demonstrated to demonstrate, demonstrated to lead to 
Um, and we do throw in information about the sample and things of that nature and give some of the breakdown. But uh, I think generally what we've learned is the science piece is not as important to people as what science is about, which is understanding and predicting results. But we just have to say it differently. That's a really great insight, just focusing on the word results. I also appreciate the insight that you should start a podcast with someone you're friends with. I wish I had known that before we started this. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me switch gears a little bit and ask you about some of your research because I think your your research area is is pretty unique and you've carved out a really great niche for yourself. Um, a lot of the topics you study have a lot to do with social justice topics of, of one sort or another. My first question is about how you navigate that balance between um, research, which requires a little bit of distance, and advocacy, which really you know, requires the opposite, which requires yourself and your emotions. And, and how do you, how do you balance those things and make sure that you're, um, uh, sort of being responsible to both domains? Yeah, I think this is a really important question. And I've heard a lot of students, um, or a lot of students have come to me struggling with, uh, this same kind of, um, tension that you're bringing up. And what I would say, and I've thought, I've, I really put a lot of time into thinking through my positionality on this. And what I think is that when you're new to a domain, it's really important to be open-minded about what the domain is telling you. And when you're gathering data, it's really important to be open to what the data is telling you. And so I think from the perspective of objectivity, you don't want to see something that's not there or push things in a direction that they wouldn't have otherwise gone, right? So you need to make sure that what your personal bent is for being involved in the project is not impacting or influencing the trajectory of the results and that you're not cherry picking um, certain parts of the literature in favor of others in order to support a particular viewpoint. So I would say entering into the research domain and entering into your projects with an open mind is the important part of objectivity. Where I would say the advocacy piece comes in for me is that I think that the idea of objectivity has limitations when you're trying to create and build bonds with people who have experienced really terrible traumas, tragedies, and other, you know, um, just negative life experiences. And you're trying to connect with people in a way that they feel comfortable telling you the truth. And I think that objectivity and this sort of like lab coat, cold lack of engagement actually gets you worse information than if you do what I think we don't often talk about, which is create actual bonds with participants of trust um, and demonstrate that you've done the work of understanding something about, uh, you know, in depth about the population that you're working within if you're not a member of that population, or even if you are, because your experiences won't be indicative of everyone's. Um, and so I actually think that the idea of objectivity when you're working with populations that have experienced these sorts of things, I think that it can be harmful in creating relationships and actually get you false information. So I wrote a paper about this in Academy Management Perspectives, and um, I had interviewed a participant. And at the end of the interview, after I turned the recording off, she said, you know, I've been interviewed about my experiences before, but I lied. I only told you the truth because I know and I trust that you'll do what the right thing with my story. And there are lots of people out there who probably got lie stories because they came in very cold and, you know, I'm here as a PhD and this is my role and you're the participant and I'm going to be sitting here and sort of staring in from their perspective, maybe judging. And so I think, um, I think there is a, a difference between going into a project with an open mind and letting the data lead you and not leading the data and also being immersed in a context in an authentic way. Um, and the last thing that I'll say is that once you go in with an open mind and you find your results, whatever they may be, you now know something and you may be a front running expert in a topic. Those are the exact kinds of people we need to then take those results and engage in advocacy efforts to that align mm. with our research. So while you're, what you come into the project, your passion for the project shouldn't guide where you end up, where you end up should be leveraged in order to create social change, right? Because if not us who actually take the time to garner this expertise, then who will do it? And so I don't think engaging in advocacy efforts detracts from your ability to be a scientist because you're in a great position once you've learned so much about this topic to actually use that information to advocate. You're There's 
Yeah. Um, so I, you're walking such an interesting line, um, and I think it's a very difficult one to walk successfully. So, so congrats and good luck uh, on that. But uh, one one thing I'm wondering uh, is I, I think the not exactly a counter argument, but the argument for advocacy first is often, well, the problems are so big and so important that the science will never be fast enough, that it'll never be informative enough to the real on the ground situation people have. Um, and I, I imagine you, you you probably hit situations with other people coming in from that perspective who are like, no, I'm right because I'm right. I don't care about your science. And it's kind of the same theme that you're talking about with uh, dealing with the, the podcast. So I'm, yeah, I'm just curious if you what kind of experiences you've had dealing with that, like in the in the real world application uh, kind of things that you've been trying to do with your your research and and just how you react to that in general. Yeah, I think I think the good news is right that we're trained to evaluate science, and while we're not experts in every methodology, we are trained to evaluate the rigor of studies. And we uh, a strength that IO psychologists bring to the table is we have a lot of really great quantitative skills, um, and a lot of data is quantitative. Um, and so I think that none of us are ever reinventing a wheel. We're adding nuance to an existing narrative, right? And so I think one thing, um, going back to the open-mindedness, it would be a problem if you were like, as a scientist, I want to advocate for something, but I'm going to advocate for it based on this cherry-picked set of 10 articles that I found, and I'm going to ignore these other 50 articles that I found, and then I'm going to go do a research project that reinforces those 10 articles that I found, and I'm not going to mention those other 50. Mm. And uh, you become sort of siloed in what in your thinking. I think that a different approach could be lots of scientists have talked about this. I have a skill set that allows me to evaluate this information and I'm going to learn what the body of literature actually says holistically, come to some conclusions myself, figure out where the gaps are. And as I'm filling what that gap is and waiting for a time when I might be able to use that information to mm. better understand what needs to be advocated for, that doesn't mean that I can't have an opinion about what I've learned in that kind of in-depth analysis. And if you can't have an opinion after doing that kind of an in-depth analysis, I don't think anyone can have an opinion, right? And so mm -hmm. even the people making laws probably don't have um, that kind of uh, uh, background in, in understanding. So I think sometimes we hold ourselves to too high of a standard in terms mm. of when you can actually have a conclusion that you say, and moving forward, society might build a policy around this conclusion because based on existing evidence, this seems to be true. So um, I think I think sometimes we hold ourselves to a standard that is unrealistic. We have to know every single thing before we can do anything. Yeah, it seems like what you're talking about is a kind of humility um, and and respect, which every researcher should have, regardless of what kind of research question they're pursuing, right? Respect for your participants as human beings um, and humility and acknowledging that you're not different than them, right? We're all human beings. And I, um, I, I had a conversation recently with someone who shall remain nameless who said, you know, so many psychologists who do this kind of research have never spoken to a person. Like they've never spoken to one of their participants and mm. how can they understand the problem that they're attempting to do research with if they've never spoken to a person. And I myself went through a journey um, over time. I, I learned this lesson when I started doing qualitative research with schools. And I thought, you know, oh, I, like who I am matters in this story too. And how I interact with this environment matters too. And this was completely novel and new information for me to start thinking about. Um, and actually, so speaking of that, you are frequently, although not always a qualitative researcher, wish that more IO psychologists were qualitative or would you rather keep all the glory for yourself? <laughs> I'm really in it for the glory. So just refrain anyone who's listening from doing qualitative work. I'm just here for it all for me. No, um, <laughs> no. What I think is I would say I wish that qualitative methodologies were taught more frequently in IO programs as a valid methodology to engage in for answering a whole research question or, you know, exploring a whole research question or part of a research question or set of questions. Um, so do I wish that the methodology got more play in IO psych? Yeah, I do wish that. Um, I think for folks who are quantitatively trained, 
I wouldn't encourage you to just, just like you wouldn't be like, I'm going to jump up tomorrow and just like sit on the computer and punch a bunch of numbers in and run a structural equation model and whatever comes out, like I'm sure it's right, whatever. I would not suggest that people kind of just go from zero to 60 on it because it is a methodology just like any other that you need to learn and really become um, immersed in and understand what the rigorous way of following that method is. But um, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor uh, for folks who are interested, whether you want to be doing projects that are entirely qualitative or engaging in mixed methods projects. Um, and I think that's particularly important for people who are studying issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion or social justice. Um, we have found that when you're engaging with populations that maybe just the reviewer has not encountered themselves, you talked about like actually talking to a person so they don't know anyone in the community, they haven't done a lot of reading or educating themselves around this community's identity, struggles, et cetera. Sometimes it can be challenging to get a review team on board with what is a good or important paper if they just don't get who the people in your sample are or what their experiences are. And so something that I think is really powerful about qualitative data is that it helps to tell a story and grip the reader in a way that helps to provide a context that then helps your quantitative data to speak more loudly um, and helps your contribution to speak more loudly because people who read the article have an entry point into what you're trying to describe or explain. And so we've found that mixed methods projects um, create a stronger, more compelling paper, um, not just because they contain more data and the qualitative data can provide a really strong foundational basis for why your quantitative model exists. And it helps to provide some um, evidentiary support for why and a model that you're testing that might depart from existing theory from a different perspective should depart from existing theory from a particular perspective. But it also really helps to, um, to make the case to the folks that are reading it that, oh, this life experience is something different from what I've experienced, or this population is going through something that's mm -hmm. challenging. I'm interested in understanding how that impacts or why that might flip around some of what we think things should unfold like um, in the workplace. Something that, um, that really jumps out at me in that, in that response uh, is that, so historically, psychology has really focused very heavily, in my opinion, too heavily on this general population of human, right? That what we're interested in is broad, generalizable ideas about how people exist. Do you, do you think that there's a general movement now toward meaningful study of subpopulations? Uh, is, that, is that now a viable path if you want to be doing psych research? I hope so. I mean, we have faced some challenges in the review process with people saying, so we've done a lot of studies um, working with transgender employees mm. and we have gotten pushback from reviewers. That's like, how is this relevant to every other employee or how is this relevant to every other minoritized group in the workplace? Mm. Um, and it's frustrating because why does it have to be generalizable to everyone else in order to be important? It's characteristic of a segment of the population's experiences that we should ostensibly care about. Um, and so I think that it's always a struggle because this idea of contributing to theory um, forces you to take a broader umbrella, right? And say, okay, well, this changes what we think about this entire way of theorizing, or mm -hmm. this adds something that, you know, changes the way people think about conservation of resources theory or whatever. But I think what we've been trying to do is argue that it is a contribution to say, when we look at this theory from a different perspective, even if that perspective is 1% of the population, right? That's still a, a ton of people. So if you look at this theory from a different perspective, something about it changes. And that does constitute a valuable theoretical contribution because it shows us where our theories don't work. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, from, from that lens, I find that a meaningful theoretical contribution. Um, and I think there's more support for the idea that taking a different standpoint and showing where our theories don't hold up is a valuable exercise. I, th this conversation used to be very popular amongst people who did cross-cultural research. And that was always the, the knee-jerk response from people who weren't very thoughtful is like, well, we already know this. Why do you have to show it in this population from wherever? And 
And I think right. what you've said is really important, which is that, well, we need to establish the boundary conditions of our theories to know if they really do describe um, more kinds of people. And my sense is that the field is changing in that, in that, um, in that attitude, um, but maybe not equally across all research domains and research areas. It's entirely possible. Do you have any, um, is there a resource that a student might go to if they wanted to get into qualitative research, but none of their faculty happen to work in that area? Yeah, there are some classic works um, that I like by Strauss and Corbin. They're kind of like the classic uh, folks in this space if you want to get started with like a textbook. Um, there's also uh, really good stuff by Creswell um, that's out there that you could look at. But I, I would say if you want to get started with understanding how to do qualitative research well, go to journals that publish a lot of qualitative research and look at what authors are doing to demonstrate the rigor of their methods. Look at who they're citing. Um, look up the references that they're putting um, in their um, in their uh, uh, method sections and try to get a sense of what people are, what process people are following. Um, there's a lot of great work in ASQ and AMJ that provide wonderful templates for students that are interested um, in qualitative work and some more updated um, guidelines on how to do qualitative work um, from scholars like Mike Pratt, um, as well as uh, Stina Grodal um, has a great paper with um, uh, uh, Michelle Antibi and others about uh, sort of the actual messy process of doing qualitative work that might make students feel a little bit better when they're in the midst of thousands of pages of transcripts and trying to figure out how to code and make sense of everything. So um, I would say those are a couple places to start, but certainly the method sections of rigorous articles that have done this well is a really great place to learn kind of what's, what's the convention and where things are moving. Awesome. Well, I have, I have one more question for you before. Yeah. Before we, wrap, before we wrap this gig. So uh, I was trying to think about the theme of these questions I wanted to ask you and it, it, no theme was immediately apparent, but, but overall, I think the theme here is that your career has really been a series of unconventional paths, unconventional choices. And a lot of people beginning their careers are probably very inspired by that and want to be like you. So question is, do you have advice for people who are maybe choosing the more difficult, the less common path in their work or in their careers and how they can, you know, muster the courage to do that? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say um, if anyone wants to be like me, there are lots of people that I'm trying to be like, so we could connect and I can <laughs> tell you who those people are <laughs> and maybe you could try to be like them too. Um, but I would say it's really important to know or to try to really meditate on the difference between advice that is tactical and practical that's just because that's valuable because you lack context or experience in the field so like if your advisor is giving you advice on a paper and says, you know, based on my experience in the review process, we probably need to flip around these paragraphs or the theoretical contribution needs to be stronger or whatever, that you're open to that kind of advice, right? That you're listening to mentors and being open to what they're um, telling you because there is so much to learn and we're all constantly learning. The reason I set it up that way is because I don't want what I'm going to say next to sound like I'm just saying don't listen to anyone, right? Because I do think there's a lot of value in listening and learning from people who have your best interests at heart that you know know you as a person and as um, as a professional and are interested in your development. But I also think there are certain things that you just feel very strongly are important for your own happiness and health and well-being. And maybe they're weird and people aren't used to seeing them, but there's something that's in you that really feels like this is a direction I should go in. So when I was in graduate school and I wanted to do a dual PhD in IO psych and gender and women's studies, that was a really weird idea and people hadn't done it before. And a lot of the guidance that I got was, you know, that's really challenging. I would suggest you don't do that. And um, I think that I just felt so strongly that that pathway was important for me to explore that I ignored the advice and did it. Now, once I was on that pathway, if I was writing a paper, I had an idea for something and I was like, this is what I want to have for my dissertation. And someone who's really knowledgeable in that area said, you know, you really should check into these papers because I think they've already done something similar. There's this whole body of literature you're missing. That's not a time to say, no, 
that I, you know, I'm a sparkly unicorn and I'm going to do what I want. Right. Um, so, but I think when it's these big questions of like, what kind of a, a researcher do I want to be? Um, what topics am I interested in? What inspires me to work on? What kind of populations do I want to study? What methods do I want to use? Like those kinds of questions, if you're doing something unconventional and someone says, yeah, that's going to be a tough road, I would suggest you avoid it. Take the tough road if you're willing to fight for the tough road, you know, because um, it could be easier to do something else, but you might not be happy. So I, I would say be discerning about advice. Um, don't neglect advice uh, when it's about lack of experience. Listen to people who are more experienced, but pay attention to stuff that only you know about yourself that you think would be positive to follow. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that you need to have a good sense of what your values are um, and making choices that are aligned with your values will, will pay off regardless of whether the people around you at that moment happen to share those values. Right. Yeah, so that was a much more around. concise way of saying what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that summary. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> I think that's totally true, though. I mean, I can think of lots of times in my own history where I was surrounded by people who felt a particular way and I felt a different way. And it was very intimidating to say, well, I, you know, I want to go a different way. I think I should do something differently than everybody else around me. Uh, but I think we all can say now, at the, you know, all three of us that in the long run, that's the better way to go, right? Because you end up in a better spot in the end. Yeah. Well, because, you know, I really do think that most of our listeners are going to be um, bothering you and attempting to select you as a mentor after this, but <laughs> I apologize in advance, but it has just I'm been happy about such it. a fun conversation and I really appreciate you coming on the show. I learned a lot and I hope I hope it was a good use of your time too. Absolutely. All right, Richard, back to you. All right, that is uh, that's it for gig number seventeen. Uh, we didn't we didn't get a super big plug for uh, Katina's podcast in there, but I'll post a link in the uh, description in the YouTube description. Uh, the short version that, though is uh, take the word worker being and remove the e from worker and add it to being dot uh, com. Uh, but you can check that out there. Uh, also, please check out our own next show. Uh, subscribe, turn on YouTube notifications, join the email notification list. Uh, you can get on our Discord as well. Uh, one of our uh, uh, viewers uh, posted that link to Worker Being there conveniently for everybody also. So many ways to connect and uh, with us and with the uh, broader gig community. So thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time for another great IO get-together. Bye. Oh, the times were hard and the wages low. Leave a Johnny, leave a... I guess it's time for us to go. And it's time for us to leave her. Leave a Johnny, leave a... Oh, leave a Johnny, leave a... For the voyage is done and the winds don't blow. And it's time for us to leave her. That's it for another gig. To stay in touch, subscribe on YouTube. Check out our website at thegig.online. Join our LinkedIn group. Sign up for our email notification list and join our Discord. So many ways to connect. Thanks for joining us and see you next time for another great IO get-together. <laughs>